Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We're going to hear a lecture today by Dr. Bruce McCormick. Dr. McCormick is the Charles Hodge Professor of Systematic Theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's one of the world's leading scholars on the theology of Karl Barth, a wonderful scholar and theologian, and he's speaking today at this conference we're listening into about the doctrine of justification. Uh, What's at stake? Current debates on justification. This was a lecture given in 2003 at the Wheaton College Theology Conference. And he takes us into this great Reformation teaching, one that's been very controversial uh, throughout history and even today. And I think he gives us some very important insights on the doctrine of justification. Let's listen to our friend, Dr. Bruce McCormick. The doctrine of justification is the doctrine of the Reformation. That doctrine which, more than any other, gave to 16th century Protestantism its character as Protestant. To put it this way is not to claim for the doctrine of justification the status of a central dogma in the sense which that phrase acquired in the course of 19th century debates over fundamental differences between the Lutheran and Reformed theological systems. Indeed, that entire discussion in the 19th century was misguided from the outset, for it presupposed that some one doctrine could and, in fact, did act as the material principle of each of the two dogmatic systems. That is to say, a doctrine from which the contents of all other doctrines could be deduced more or less analytically. There was no central dogma for any of the Reformers in this precise sense. The Reformers did not attempt to construct analytically deduced systems of doctrine, but contented themselves instead with the elaboration of loci communis, a collection of theological topics drawn together from Scripture and ordered by means of the progress of salvation history from creation to eschatology. But to acknowledge that the Reformers did not pursue systems in the analytical sense takes nothing away from the fact that they were indeed systematic. They understood that the body of Christian doctrines are organically related to one another. For that reason, they also understood that the decisions made in one area need to be consistent with the decisions made in other areas. If it could be shown that they were not, a strong presumption would then have existed that a mistake had had occurred somewhere. Moreover, it was possible for the Reformers to honor the rejection of deductive systems resident in the option for loci communis without surrendering the belief that some doctrines had, in fact, a more basic character than others, influencing and coloring and shaping the way in which others were articulated to an extent that was not true of all doctrines. My contention would be that the Reformers' forensic understanding of justification had precisely that kind of wide-reaching influence. For the idea of an immediate divine imputation renders superfluous the entire Catholic system of the priestly mediation of grace by the Church. 
To speak of a positive imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer is to affirm the priesthood of all believers, the communion of the saints with its necessary protest against clericalism, the primacy of the preached word in worship, etc. This understanding of the centrality of justification is confirmed by the great reformers themselves. Luther understood the doctrine of justification to be the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. The doctrine, in other words, by the understanding and lived appropriation of which it is decided whether a community of faith is a Christian church. And so he could say in his 1537 Schmalkald art Articles, quote, On this article rests all that we teach and practice against the Pope, the devil, and the world. Therefore, we must be quite certain and have no doubts about it. Otherwise, all is lost, unquote. For Calvin, too, a rightly ordered understanding of justification was basic to the whole of the Christian life. He called it the main hinge on which religion turns. And he added, For unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety toward God. Unquote. Lutheran and Reformed theologians disagreed on a number of things. But the one thing on which there was no disagreement was the central importance of justification by grace through faith. For it was that, above all, which defined Protestantism and gave to each of its member churches its character as Protestant. What is at stake in this doctrine is nothing less than the Reformation itself. In putting it this way, I have already provided you with a succinct and clear answer to the question posed by my title. What is at stake in current debates over justification? My answer is nothing less than the Reformation. This is not to suggest that the crisis of Protestantism, which we are experiencing today in the West, has its source in a relative incomprehension of the Reformers' teachings on the subject of justification and that alone. The current crisis has many sources, many of them less than theological, having to do with the ongoing impact of the secularization of the church in our culture. So even if the Protestant doctrine of justification were to be believed, taught, and confessed on a church-wide basis, there is no guarantee that such a turn of events would in fact save Protestantism. But this much seems clear. The absence of clarity about this doctrine and the challenges which are currently being brought against it are, I think, contributing mightily to the theological confusion which reigns in the churches of the Reformation and, in all likelihood, hastening the demise of Protestantism in the West. This is not, I assure you, the hysterical response of an ultra-conservative Protestant who feels threatened by all change whatsoever. To the contrary, it is my belief that the great reformers themselves deserve at least some of the blame for the current crisis with regard to their chief article of faith. There were too many questions relevant to a comprehensive understanding of justification which remained suppressed 
as a consequence of the reformers' lack of interest in questions which they perceived to be philosophical rather than theological. We are paying a high price for that lack of interest today. So what you will hear from me today and tomorrow will not take the form of a plea that we simply return to the Reformation. Back to, as Karl Barth once wisely remarked, is never a good slogan. But the truth that was borne witness to by Reformation theology often went well beyond what was explicitly stated in its originating formulations. Where the doctrine of justification in particular is concerned, my own conviction is that the Reformers had it basically right. But unfortunately, they were not in a position to explore the theological ontology implied in their understanding of justification, which left their articulation of the doctrine vulnerable to criticism, which was not finally decisive, but could appear to be so to anyone who had not thought their position through to the very end. I would go so far as to say that the promise contained in the Reformation doctrine of justification has yet to be fully realized, not in the churches at any rate. It is for that reason that I am so thoroughly dismayed to see the Reformation doctrine of justification finding so few able defenders at a point in its history in which the truthfulness and adequacy has never been more in doubt. An adequate defense of the doctrine will not be made by those who believe that only those doctrines are true which find an explicit warrant in the Bible. This is not to deny, of course, that the Bible must be, for any genuinely evangelical theology, the sole authoritative norm of what is to be said in the realm of doctrinal theology. That much should go without saying. It is rather to raise a necessary protest against a hermeneutical approach which would reduce that which counts as biblical to that for which an explicit warrant, a proof text, can be found in the Bible. Biblicism, which is the word I use to describe that kind of hermeneutical reductionism, was the bane of much Reformation theology, which helps to explain why the Reformers did not attend to questions of theological ontology. But the truth of the matter is that every doctrine of justification, including that of the Apostle Paul himself, contains, by way of implication at the very least, a theological ontology, which is to say, an understanding of what it means to be human, and with that theological ontology, an understanding of the nature of grace, and how it works, the nature of faith, and how it works, and what we mean by the concept of union with Christ. What counts as biblical is not just what the Bible says, but what it presupposes, and what it implies in saying what it says. That this is so will be readily granted, I think, by those committed to an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, to give just one brief example. It is well known that the New Testament does not set forth a doctrine of the ontological or imminent trinity in the form of direct propositional teaching on the subject. The word employed in the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed to resolve the problem of the Son's eternal relation to the Father, namely the word homoousios, is not a word which will be found in the New Testament. 
and it is understandable why this should be so. The attention of the New Testament writers was absorbed by the economy of God, by what God had done in their midst in the realm of history to secure their salvation, etc. That what they had to say about the economy of God then implied a good deal about the nature of God in and for himself is also true. But these implications were not explicitly drawn by them. So what do we do in the face of such a problem? Should doctrinal theology be limited to repeating what the writers of the New Testament said and never transgressing that boundary? Or should doctrinal theologians be free to analyze the presuppositions and implications of what is said in order to come to a more thorough understanding of the meaning of what is said? Let me put all of my cards on the table. What is missing in current ecumenical agreements on the doctrine of justification is precisely the element which a fair number of New Testament scholars are telling us today is not to be found in the New Testament. Namely, an explicit affirmation of the Reformation idea of a positive imputation of Christ's righteousness to those who have faith in him. That is the element that was central to the doctrine of justification in the Reformation. That is the element which today is being placed in doubt. My point here is simply to suggest that whether that idea is finally seen to count as biblical or not will not depend upon whether one can find an explicit affirmation of it in the Bible. What it will depend on is whether that notion does a better job of helping us to make sense of what is said than do the alternatives. What needs to be understood is not only what Paul says explicitly about justification, but what understanding of the human is commensurate with what he says, how he conceives the nature of grace, and above all, how he conceives the nature of faith. A thorough comprehension of Paul's doctrine of justification would require attention to his understanding of the relation of law to divine being, of election to creation, of the work of Christ to the work of the Holy Spirit. All of this is necessary if we were to make a fully informed decision as to whether Paul held on to something like a positive imputation of Christ's righteousness. I could take that even further and say, I, I don't think we'll, we'll get the doctrine right unless we have a rightly ordered Christology, a rightly ordered doctrine of the Trinity, and a proper conception of election. Obviously, that's not something that most New Testament scholars think they need in order to tell you what's being said in a particular passage. Nonetheless, it sure would help in many cases. <clears throat> now, it is not my intention to deal with Paul directly in this essay. In any case, uh, I think that what... Donald Carson had to say yesterday morning, said all that I could say, and said it so much better, I'm glad to appear alongside of him, uh, because I think it helps to make sense of what I'll be doing. <clears throat> I conceive my work here as a kind of historical prolegomena to the task of New Testament theology. My goal is not to resolve the issue of what Paul taught, or whether the so-called new perspective on Paul is correct or not but to show what is at stake in the debates. 
I want to make you, mostly tomorrow morning, feel existentially what is at stake. If I could do that, I think it would have a most salutary effect. The issues confronting the churches today where the doctrine of justification is concerned are not purely academic. The positions we take on these issues have very serious consequences for ecclesial life and pastoral practice, consequences which ought to be part of any discussion of what Paul says. Now, this obviously reflects my own situation as a member of the Presbyterian Church USA, a church which is rapidly going up in flames. This is not an issue I can discuss dispassionately. What I want to do tonight is to engage in a close reading of Thomas, Luther, and Calvin on the doctrine of justification and its relation to the theme of regeneration. What I hope to demonstrate is that the break with medieval Catholicism, which we might have expected to be complete if we paid attention only to the Reformers' doctrine of justification, was actually less than complete due to a residual commitment to medieval Catholic understandings of regeneration and a shaky grasp of the relation of justification and regeneration. I hope to show, secondly, that the reason for all of this is that the Reformers' refusal to engage issues of theological ontology made them blind to the extent to which they continued to subscribe to ontological assumptions which could, logically, only fund a Catholic ordering of regeneration and justification to the detriment of their own understanding of justification. To do this much should make it clear why the Reformation is in so much trouble today. Finally, I will suggest that there is an alternative understanding of theological ontology embedded in the forensic frame of reference which would have overcome the residual problems contained in the Reformers' ongoing attachment to a theologically outmoded ontology. <clears throat> now, in what I'm going to do tonight is to just take you through Thomas, Luther, and Calvin. Tomorrow I'm going to try to tell you what went wrong in Calvin's theology especially, and then offer a solution. So most of what I have to do tonight will be a, a critical engagement with primary sources uh, from the tradition, and tomorrow I'm going to do more systematic work. Um, I'm going to give you a five-minute break between Luther and Calvin, <laughs> because I'm well aware that I'm the last speaker, and you've been listening to a lot of uh, lectures, and you're undoubtedly exhausted, so we'll take a break between Luther and Calvin. I hope you won't run out on Calvin. <laughs> All right. The teaching of Thomas on justification. By the way, this is a pet peeve of mine, but to me, the man's name is Thomas. It's not Aquinas. Aquino is the town he's from. Okay? We wouldn't say Bruce of Princeton and then call him Princeton. <laughs> You can call him St. Thomas if you're inclined in that direction, but in my theology, we're all saints. <laughs> to, understand, 
Twin Thomas's theology of justification, we must place it in the context in which he himself placed it, namely a consideration of the nature of grace, its divisions, and its causes. For Thomas, considered on the most general level of reflection, grace is two things. Grace is the action of God upon the soul, and grace is the effect of that action. Considered as the effect of God's work in the soul, grace is the remaking of the soul, or as Thomas also speaks of it, a healing. The healing is said to take place in the essence of the soul, not in the soul's powers or faculties only. Now this distinction between the essence of the soul and its powers is an extremely important one for an understanding of the nature of grace and how it works. So it would re reward us to examine it more closely. In back of this distinction lies Thomas's theological ontology of the human. For Thomas, the soul is an incorporeal, which is to say spiritual, substance. An incorporeal substance. As such, however, it is also the form which makes the matter of which the body is composed to be a human body, and indeed, this particular human body. Thomas rejected every Platonizing understanding of the soul which would see it as something that is simply complete in and for itself apart from the body. Thomas held that soul and body belong together in a unity. You do not find one without the other in nature, which is to say, in this world. Either is an incomplete substance in the absence of the other. It is true that the soul is able to survive the death of the body, which also means that it can exist in separation from the body, but this is unnatural, or as Thomas preferred to say, beyond nature. To claim this much is also to suggest that the form that the soul is, is unique in kind. It alone, out of all the forms found in nature, is capable of continuing to exist in the absence of matter. Once created, it is immortal. Now form, generally considered, is the whatness of a thing. That which makes it to be what it is. In living things, however, the form is that whereby the thing in question acts. But the human is not just any living thing. Animals, that whereby a thing acts is what Thomas, following Aristotle, called the sensitive soul. Animals are capable of more than providing nourishment for themselves and reproducing. They can also experience sensation. But the human soul transcends this sensitive soul in that the human soul has the intellectual powers of mind and will which allow it to know and to will spiritual realities, to make universal judgments, to enter into fields of study like pure mathematics, which have no known applications. <laughs> For this reason, Thomas, again following Aristotle, 
denominates the soul in the human an intellectual soul. So brute animals have sensitive souls, humans have intellectual souls. So the form that the human soul is turns out to be unique in kind from a second direction as well. Not only is it immortal, it is also intellectual in character. The final step is to see how the soul subsists. That is, how it receives and has its being and existence. Thomas says, quote, Nothing acts except so far as it is in act. And so, a thing acts by that whereby it is in act, unquote. So form, it turns out, is the act in which a thing has its being and existence. Form is equated by Thomas with the first principle of life in living things. And since this principle in humans is intellectual in character, form is also the principle of intellectual activity. Now the act from which the human individual lives may be viewed from two angles. Thomas is just great at making distinctions. They just flow one from another to another. The act from which the human individual lives may be viewed from two angles. Viewed from the side of its origin and divine action, the act from which the human lives is a divine act of creation out of nothing. Thomas held that every individual soul is created by a special act of God. He was a creationist. The soul is not generated through the reproductive process. It is joined to the body in the moment of conception. Viewed from the side of the terminus of this divine act in the human, the language of the act from which the human lives is descriptive of the ground in humans from which all other acts then proceed. Viewed from the first angle, the soul subsists on the basis of a special act of God. Viewed from the second angle, as the terminus of the divine action in the human, the soul subsists through an existence proper to itself. This sets it apart from all other forms found in nature, in that all other forms are generated and, as a consequence, are never found in the absence of matter, as was previously suggested. The soul, then, we might say, by way of summary, is a spiritual substance which is incomplete in the absence of the body. It is intellectual in nature and has subsistence has its subsistence in itself as a consequence of the divine will. I hope that this much is reasonably clear. But there is a problem in, in it which comes clearly into focus when we inquire more closely into the distinction between the essence of the soul and its powers. Grace, we said at the outset, finds its seat in the essence of the soul and not in the powers, not even in the highest powers of mind and will. It is clear what Thomas hopes to achieve by means of this distinction. For Thomas, the distinction between the essence of the soul and its powers is the distinction between what we would call today the subject, a word which he even will use on occasion, and the powers or faculties possessed by that subject. In Thomas's hands, however, the distinction has the feel of something more nearly ideal than real, and this for two reasons. First and most importantly, 
when we turn to the question of the nature of that grace which is infused into the essence of the soul in justification, the only word Thomas has at his command for speaking of it is light. Now the metaphor light is most commonly employed in theology and perhaps philosophy as well to suggest something like intellectual illumination. But such a conclusion would appear to betray Thomas's intention to locate infused grace in the essence of the soul rather than in its intellectual powers of mind and will. You see, if you, just, if you describe the nature of grace in terms of light and you think of that in terms of intellectual illumination, then it would seem logical to assume that light has its seat in the mind, not in the essence of the soul. And one of the, one of the powers of the soul, not its essence. This conceptual confusion is only further heightened by the fact that Thomas can make intellect to be descriptive of both the essence of the soul and one of its highest powers. But secondly, to speak of that whereby a human acts in terms of an act is to render the distinction between the essence of the soul and the powers of the soul in action in terms that appear to place them on the same plane of reality. Both, after all, are acts. The difference is that the essence of the soul is the act which founds all other subsequent acts. The first act, then, is an utterly inward act which grounds all actions directed outwards, outside of myself. But this means that the distinction is largely a logical one. The result of an attempt to posit the existence of a ground of activity. To be sure, Thomas wants this distinction to be understood as something real and not merely ideal. The distinction between the subject and the powers possessed by that subject are in complete conformity with the ontological presupposition which governs Thomas's reflections throughout his Summa, namely that essence precedes and grounds existence in all things finite. Essence precedes and grounds existence in all things finite. Only in God are the two identical, essence and existence. But however clearly realistic Thomas may be on the level of intention, his execution of these distinctions leaves us with nagging questions about conceptual clarity. If I were asked to put my finger on the source of this conceptual fuzziness, I would have to say that it has much less to do with the Aristotelian distinctions with which he works, distinctions which parenthetically are absolutely crystal clear in themselves, than it does with the constitutive role that infant baptism is playing on the whole of his thinking about grace. The reasons for this claim will be clear in a moment. It is now time we turn to the subject of grace. Grace, we have said, is infused into the soul. The infusion of grace results in a healing, a remaking of the soul after the image of God. Now, how does this come about? To enter into this question is to come up, finally, against the doctrine of justification. In a human nature properly ordered after the image of God, the mind which Thomas regarded as the highest part of human nature, is in subjection to God, and the lower, appetitive powers of the soul are in subjection to the mind. 
the appetites are in subjection to the mind. It is this right ordering of human nature which Thomas defined as justice, rectitude. The effect of sin on human nature is to introduce a disordering into the individual's very being. No longer is the individual in subjection to God. Her relationship with God is broken. No longer do, do the, does the mind rule the appetites, but instead the appetites rule the mind. It is this essential derangement of nature which is addressed in the divine justification. For Thomas, justification is the process by means of which God makes us to be just. It is the process by means of which our nature is recreated and reordered after the divine image. It is the process by which God actually makes human beings to be righteous. Okay, that's the most basic definition. Now let's look at it a bit more closely to see precisely how justification comes about. Justification, according to Thomas, is a movement from a state of injustice to a state of justice. Any movement, Thomas said, here come his powers of analysis, any movement involves a mover who sets things in motion, the movement itself, and the object of the movement. The mover, in this case, is God, who infuses grace into the sinner. To explain the nature of the movement itself, Thomas says that God moves all things according to the mode proper to each. Men and women, too, are moved in accordance with the characteristics of human nature. But men and women are, by nature, beings endowed with free choice. And so, God moves the sinner towards justice by moving his or her free will. Quote, He infuses the gift of justifying grace in such a way that, at the same time, he also moves the free choice to accept the gift of grace. Unquote. Grace is here depicted as exercising an influence on free will, whereby it is turned towards God. To be turned towards God is, at the same time, to be turned away from sin. Thus, the immediate result of the infusion of justifying grace is a double movement of the will. And finally, the object of the movement is the forgiveness of sins. There are, therefore, four elements in justification for Thomas. There is, one, the infusion of justifying grace. Two, a movement of free choice directed towards God by faith. Three, a movement of free choice against sin. And four, the forgiveness of sins. It should be noted that the four elements which are required for justification are simultaneous in time. They do not succeed one another. Justification is complete in an instant. Thomas has arranged these elements here in a logical rather than a chronological order. Thomas held that justification occurs in an instant, but it has to be remembered that he did not think that anyone is perfected in an instant. When we fall away and commit sin, we require to be forgiven anew, and for this, the infusion of grace through the sacramental system has been established.
Therefore, justification, or the making just of human nature, is something which is repeated throughout the Christian life as we make use of the means of grace, especially the grace given through the sacrament of penance. Now, as an aside, notice that the order here would imply infusion of grace leading towards forgiveness. Forgiveness is at the end. If you know anything about um, <coughs> the medieval Catholic understanding of penance, they always said it involves three parts. Contrition, confession, satisfaction. And what then follows after all of that is forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't the starting point, it's the end point. Now, Thomas's explanation of how justification comes about does have something rather curious about it. You will have noticed that he lays a great deal of emphasis, emphasis upon the thought that God moves all things according to the mode proper to each, and that this means that God moves men and women through the exercise of a spiritual influence on their free wills. But Thomas does know of one grand exception. Quote, Infants are not capable of movements of free choice, and so they are moved by God towards justice only by a reception, only by reception of a form in their souls. This does not play, take place, he continues, without a sacramental act. For just as original sin from which they are justified, or moved to a state of justice, reaches them not by their own will, but by fleshly origination, so too grace has its source in them by spiritual rebirth. Unquote. Thomas speaks here as though the case of the infant is simply an exception to the rule of what normally happens in justification, in terms of the fourfold movement that I just described. For the entire presentation of the doctrine of justification, as he has described it, presupposes that the recipient of God's justifying grace is in fact an adult. The infusion of grace, as we saw, is understood by Thomas to consist in a spiritual movement of free choice in the human. But of course, grace so construed would seem most naturally to find its point of entry on the level of the intellectual powers of the soul. So, notice, and this is my provisional conclusion, there would be no need to locate the infusion of grace in the essence of the soul were it not for the fact that the church's accepted practice was to baptize infants. And that also means that Thomas's tendency to understand justification as rooted in an ontological healing of the soul rather than in a more personalistic understanding of the operations of grace is a function of the fact that the regeneration of the infant is what is really the truly paradigmatic case for a Catholic Christian in the Middle Ages like himself, where that infusion of grace which initiates justification is concerned. This does not mean that Thomas has been inconsistent. Far from it. The justification from original sin which is made ours in our baptism as infants is one that is repeated thereafter with respect to acts of sin throughout our lives through the sacrament of penance. But it is very likely that the conceptual difficulties we encountered earlier do find their source precisely at this point. Thomas created problems for himself by speaking of the nature of infused grace in terms of light. That metaphor suggesting as it does and, and suggesting as it does an illumination of the mind works well enough in the case of adults 
though it does render problematic the effort to locate infused grace in the essence of the soul rather than in the intellectual power. But in the case of the regeneration of the infant in baptism, grace needs to be understood in terms of something other than light. The soul, as we have seen, is a spiritual substance. And that which would heal this substance substantially ought itself to be something quasi-substantial, perhaps even physical. Healing, after all, is a metaphor drawn from the world of medicine, where the object requiring help is a physical body. But I hasten to add that such problems as I have identified in Thomas's conception are only, so to speak, around the edges. In comparison with most other accounts of ontological healing which are being advocated today, and I will return to one of them tomorrow, in comparison with most other accounts of ontological healing which are being advocated today, Thomas's uh, account is tremendously coherent. And it is coherent because Thomas was able to make appeal to a highly developed theological ontology to make clear what he meant by ontological healing. Ontological healing was not, in his hands, a theological rhetoric left hanging in the air by a refusal to engage in ontological questions, which is all too often the case with many of our contemporaries. It should be added that Thomas did have a place in his doctrine of justification for the Pauline language of imputation. In that the infusion of grace brings about the forgiveness of sins, it is right to say that the non-imputation of sin is the effect of an infusion of justifying grace. As the Pauline idea of imputation would play a sizable role in Reformation theologies, it is important to point out here that Thomas limits imputation to its negative side, the non-imputation of sin. Of what would later be thought of as a positive imputation of Christ's righteousness, Thomas knew nothing. In its place is the infusion of grace into the soul, that is, regeneration. But this also means, now notice, this is the crucial conclusion to this section on Thomas. This also means that the work of God in us was being made the basis of God's forgiveness. That follows from the logic. Forgiveness is the end of the process of making just. Okay? The work of God in us, regeneration, was being made the basis of God's forgiveness, justification. And that was precisely the point at which the Reformation would finally have to raise the necessary objection. Whether the Reformation was finally able to raise the question in the most decisive way possible is a question we will have to consider. The Reformation reaction. Everything which Thomas said about justification focused finally upon a single point which the Protestant churches, both Reformed and Lutheran, would reject with increasing clarity and force. Thomas, as we saw, understood justification as a process by which we are actually made to be righteous. The Protestants, too, held that there is a process by which we are actually made to be righteous, but they referred to this as sanctification or repentance, not justification. But medievals like Thomas made no distinction between justification and sanctification. 
The reason the Protestants had a problem with this is that it made God's forgiveness of our sins to be conditional upon the current state of our actual righteousness. And even if one took great care, as Thomas most certainly did, to insist that the state of our actual righteousness is not ultimately conditioned upon what we do, since the infusion of grace is the operative element which produces righteousness in the soul, the Protestants would still have seen a danger in this medieval soteriology. What I was just saying there, in effect, is that the Protestants did a disservice to Catholics like Thomas, at least, maybe not to the popular Catholic views of the 16th century, but certainly to a Thomas when they accused the Catholic Church of teaching a justification by works. Thomas doesn't believe in a justification by works. He thinks that the infusion of grace is the operative element which produces righteousness in the soul. And still, I would want to insist that the Protestants would still have had a problem. The problem with Thomas, they would have said, had they studied him closely, lies in the fact that he makes the root of our justification to lie in what God does in us, in regeneration. But to the extent that we see our salvation as in any way contingent upon what we are or have become at a particular point in time, we shift the locus of our attention from what Luther called the alien righteousness of Christ, which is complete in itself, to a work of God in us which is radically incomplete. And to just that extent, we make personal assurance of salvation to rest on a work which, as incomplete, can never bring adequate comfort. Those with a sensitive conscience are thrown back on their own experience of grace in an effort to discern whether God has really been at work in them, whether their righteousness is sufficient, is enough. I said earlier, this all has very strong practical pastoral consequences. What then was the Protestant alternative? In its fully developed, fully developed form, the alternative was to understand justification in terms of a twofold imputation. Calvin's definition sets forth this fully developed view in a clear and succinct form. Quote, We explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men and women. And we say that it consists, one, in the remission of sins, and two, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Unquote. To the most decisive question treated under the heading of justification, namely, how do those of us separated from Jesus Christ in space and time come to participate in Christ's righteousness, the answer which Calvin gives is by imputation. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and on that basis we are forgiven. That is, the negative non-imputation of sin is contained in the positive imputation of Christ's righteousness. It should be noted that it is the role played by the imputation of Christ's righteousness and justification, and that alone which makes possible the Protestant distinction between justification on the one side and sanctification on the other. Indeed, in the absence of a commitment to a positive imputation of Christ's righteousness, there is no sufficient basis for making a distinction between justification and sanctification. If, for example, we make regeneration to be the basis of the non-imputation of sin, as Thomas already had it, there remains no reason to distinguish between the two, between justification and sanctification. 
Regeneration, after all, is sanctification, but sanctification viewed from the angle of an, in, an initiating moment rather than as part of a larger process. Hence Calvin's insistence on the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now, I have deliberately styled this form of the Protestant doctrine of justification the fully developed form. I do so in order to indicate that it is the product of a development in thought. It did not appear suddenly, as if overnight, in the early years of the Reformation, but was the result of a good bit of refinement. In this development, the decisive role was played, for both the Reformed and the Lutherans, by Calvin's response to the challenge of a one-time Lutheran by the name of Andreas Osiander. In what follows in this section of my lecture, I want to begin with a brief sketch of Luther. I will then turn to a closer examination of Calvin. It has long been recognized that Luther's thinking on the subject of justification did not achieve the degree of systematic coherence and consistency of the later Lutheran formula of concord. As Paul Althaus acknowledged, Luther uses the terms, I quote, quoting Althaus, Luther uses the terms to justify and justification in more than one sense. From the beginning, justification most often means the judgment of God with which he declares man to be righteous. In other places, however, this word stands for the entire event through which a man is essentially made righteous, a usage which Luther also finds in Romans 5. That is, for both the imputation of righteousness to man as well as man's actually becoming righteous. Justification in this sense remains incomplete on earth and is completed, first completed on the last day. Complete righteousness is in this sense an eschatological reality." Unquote. Now, on Althaus's view, both of these possibilities result in a forensic view of justification. Both entail a positive imputation of Christ's righteousness. That is to say, the immediate imputation and the progressive becoming righteous. And there is much in Luther's writings uh, that, that qualifies as a basis in favor of this interpretation. Quoting Luther, These two things make Christian righteousness perfect. The first is faith in the heart, which is a divinely granted gift and which formally believes in Christ. The second is that God reckons this imperfect faith as perfect righteousness for the sake of Christ, his Son, who suffered for the sins of the world and in whom I begin to believe. On account of this faith in Christ, God does not see the sin that still remains in me. For so long as I go on living in the flesh, there is certainly sin in me. But meanwhile... Christ protects me under the shadow of his wings and spreads over me the wide heaven of the forgiveness of sins under which I live in safety. This prevents God from seeing the sins that still cling to my flesh. My flesh distrusts God, is angry with him, does not rejoice in him, etc. But God overlooks these sins, and in his sight they are as though they were not sins. This is accomplished by imputation on account of the faith by which I begin to take hold of Christ. And on his account, God reckons imperfect righteousness as perfect righteousness and sin as not sin, even though it really is sin. 
unquote. And again, quote, Therefore, this is a marvelous definition of Christian righteousness. It is a divine imputation or reckoning as righteousness or to righteousness for the sake of our faith in Christ or for the sake of Christ. When the sophists, by which he means the scholastics, hear this definition, they laugh. For they suppose that righteousness is a certain quality that is first infused into the soul and then distributed through all the members. They cannot strip off the thoughts of reason which declares that righteousness is a right judgment and a right will. Therefore, this inestimable gift excels all reason that without any works God reckons and acknowledges as righteous the man who takes hold by faith of his Son. Righteousness is not in us in a formal sense, as Aristotle maintains, but is outside of us, solely in the grace of God and in his imputation. Unquote. Two things are abundantly clear in these passages. First, Luther was well aware of position. I do apologize for the length of this paper, but I think if I'm to make it clear to you how I think we arrived at the situation we're in today, historically, that this is all necessary ground to cover. So I hope you'll bear with me just a little longer. We turn now to John Calvin. And this is the last thing we'll cover tonight. In the history of the development of the Protestant doctrine of justification in the 16th century, the role played by Andreas Osiander in forcing further clarification of Luther's view can scarcely be overestimated. Osiander started his career as a close confidant of Luther. He was a participant in the Marburg Colloquy in 1529 and the Diet of Augsburg the following year. Already at Augsburg, however, Osiander showed himself to be unhappy with Melanchthon's defense of a forensic understanding of justification. In 1549, he was granted the first chair in theology at the newly founded University of Königsberg by his longtime benefactor and protector, Archduke Albrecht of Prussia. This in spite of the fact that he lacked an academic degree and, as it often is often the case uh, in, uh, in academic institutions today, over the objections of the entire faculty. <laughs> Faculties don't always get what they want. The Osiandrian controversy over the subject of justification began with a disputation on the subject held in Königsberg on the 24th of October in the year 1550. The outcry which the publication of Osiander's views produced locally forced the Archduke, much against his will, to appeal for an opinion to church authorities and other principalities. For this purpose, he asked for and received from Osiander a personal confession, which was entitled, Confession of the One Mediator Jesus Christ and Justification by Faith which was published on the 8th of September, 1551. Evaluations quickly poured in and were almost universally negative. To Osiander belongs credit for accomplishing something many of the time would have thought impossible. 
uniting the Philippists and the Genesio Lutherans, who are otherwise bitter opponents, in opposition to him. The only exception was the cautious attempt of Johannes Brentz to mediate between Osiander and his opponents. The formula of Concord condemned Osiander's views on the basis of the very forensic theory that he sought to overcome. A thorough treatment of Osiander's views has no real relevance to our subject here. Suffice it to say that Osiander made much of the ideas of, of, the ideas of mystical union with Christ and an essential indwelling of Christ in the believer. What is of greater interest is Calvin's critique, critique of Osiander and the light it sheds on Calvin's own doctrine of justification. Calvin's mature doctrine of justification is set forth in the definitive 1559 edition of his Institutes, Book 3, Chapter 11. The chapter begins with a consideration of the place of the doctrine of justification in Christian soteriology and an attempt to provide a complete definition of the basic terms. In sections 5 through 12, he then addresses Osiander's doctrine of quote-unquote essential righteousness. All of this material is new in the 1559 edition. I cannot agree, I can't remember who said it, but I cannot agree with one of the um, claims made in one of the earlier papers that uh, Calvin basically uh, remains unchanged in his opinions about justification. I mean, there is a tremendous amount of continuity, but there is development. He then turns to a consideration of Roman Catholic teaching. Now, the order of presentation here, Osiander first, Roman Catholicism second, strongly suggests that by this point in time, Osiander's doctrine has superseded even the Roman teaching as Calvin's primary target. The chapter concludes with a renewed emphasis on the thought that we are justified before God on the basis of a righteousness that is, quote, not in us, but in Christ, unquote. I will return momentarily to questions surrounding the place of the doctrine of justification in Calvin's soteriology. That is to say, the location of the doctrine. We may most usefully begin with a consideration of basic definitions. The basic meaning of justification, as Calvin employs the term, is acquittal. Quote, to justify means nothing else than to acquit of guilt him who was accused, as if his innocence were confirmed, unquote. The situation presupposed is that of a legal proceeding. A person stands in a judgment box accused of wrongdoing. The question being deliberated is the question of guilt. The sentence rendered, however, is that of acquittal. Now, acquittal differs from clemency in that the latter does not expunge a conviction of wrongdoing from the record of the accused. Clemency merely means that an individual has been granted some sort of release from the debt which he owed to society as a consequence of his guilt, but the guilt remains. Acquittal, on the other hand, is a declaration of innocence. No reason for condemnation remains. It sounds like a scriptural passage. The question is, how can this happen? How can the sinner be seen as innocent before the judgment seat of God when in himself he is nothing of the sort? Calvin's answer is, by means of the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. Quote, 
Therefore, since God justifies us by the intercession of Christ, he absolves us not by the confirmation of our own innocence, our own innocence, but by the imputation of righteousness, so that we who are not righteous in ourselves may be reckoned as such in Christ. Unquote. Calvin means nothing else but this when he says, quote, Justified by faith is he, excluded from the righteousness of works, grasps the righteousness of Christ through faith, and clothed in it, appears in God's sight, not as a sinner, but as a righteous man, unquote. It might be tempting to try to press the image of being clothed in Christ's righteousness in the direction of an actual righteousness, a being righteous, but the context clearly forbids this. Quote, As iniquity is abominable to God, so no sinner can find favor in his eyes insofar as he is a sinner and so long as he is reckoned as such. Accordingly, Wherever there is sin, there is also the wrath and vengeance of God showing themselves. Now he is justified who is reckoned in the condition not of a sinner, but of a righteous man. And for that reason, he stands firm before God's judgment seat while all sinners fall. If an innocent accused person be summoned before the judgment seat of a fair judge, where he will be judged according to his innocence, he is said to be justified before the judge. Thus, Justified before God is the man who, freed from the company of sinners, has God to witness and affirm his righteousness. Unquote. Innocence? Here again, this is not true of the individual in and for him or herself. No matter how advanced we may be in comparison with our fellow sinners in the way of sanctification, we can never undo the unrighteousness which we have done. We can never stand before God as those who are innocent in and for ourselves alone. And the making of us to be actually righteous through sanctification could not accomplish the innocence of which Calvin speaks. And if this nevertheless happens, if God does in fact regard us as innocent, there can only be one explanation for it. Quote, Therefore we explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Unquote. Now given his repeated insistence that, Calvin, excuse me, that Christ's righteousness is made to be ours by imputation, it was with complete consistency that Calvin also made the transfer of our guilt to Christ to be accomplished by the same means. Quote, This is our acquittal. The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. Unquote. And commenting upon 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Calvin says, Quote, The Son of God utterly clean of all fault, nevertheless took upon himself the shame and reproach of our iniquities, and in return clothed us with his purity. Unquote. And if we then ask Calvin, how? He continues, He who was about to cleanse the filth of those iniquities was covered with them by transferred imputation. Unquote. A wondrous exchange has occurred. 
Christ has clothed himself with the guilt that accrues to our sins and as a consequence clothes us with his righteousness resulting in our acquittal. And the mechanism by means of which this wondrous exchange takes place is imputation. With these basic definitions in place, Calvin turns to a critique of Osiander. The root of his criticism is to be found not simply in the account of the wondrous exchange which we just set forth, but also in certain basic commitments which are registered in his Christology. Now obviously we cannot enter into the subject of Christology fully here. Suffice it to say that Calvin would not allow for any mixing of Christ's divine nature with his human nature. And therefore, he would allow for no divinization of the human nature. And that is the point which he hammers home in his criticism of Osiander's teaching. Osiander's view, as Calvin understands it, is that justification is a term descriptive of a process by means of which the believer is united to God in such a way that he or she is made a participant in God's essence. Put another way, the essential righteousness of Christ is infused into the believer for Osiander. Such a view, Calvin concedes, might appear plausible on the surface. Osiander begins with the observation that we are one with Christ. And with this assertion, Calvin can scarcely disagree. But how are we one, Calvin asks. How is union with Christ effected? And with what specifically are we united? Calvin says that Osiander's fundamental error lies in his failure to understand rightly the nature of the bond of this unity. The fact that union comes about through the Holy Spirit is treated by Osiander as a matter of little importance if it does not result in a mingling of Christ's essence with our own. Worse still, Calvin says, in speaking of Christ's essence, what Osiander has in view finally is the very essence of God. The essential righteousness of Christ is the righteousness which is his by virtue of being God, the divine righteousness which he, so to speak, brought with him into the hypostatic union with human flesh. And so Calvin numbers among Osiander's deceptions the following ideas. Quote, that Christ is our righteousness because he is God eternal, the source of righteousness, and the very righteousness of God himself, unquote. Osiander, quote, has expressed himself as not content with that righteousness which has been acquired for us by Christ's obedience and sacrificial death, but pretends that we are substantially righteous in God by the infusion both of his essence and of his quality, unquote. Osiander's view, thus, entails a, quote, mixture of substances by which God, transfusing himself into us, as it were, makes us part of himself, unquote. I would submit to you that whatever else is meant by Calvin's talk of the Holy Spirit as the bond which joins us to Christ, it is clearly intended to exclude this possibility. Because Osiander has made himself guilty of such a mixing of substances, he has also confused two things that must be kept separate, justification on the one hand and regeneration on the other. Osiander holds that, quote, 
God justifies not only by pardon, but also by regenerating, unquote. Against this, Calvin says that although the two things, justification and regeneration, cannot be torn apart in reality, they must be carefully distinguished on the level of sound teaching. It is quite true that, quote, as Christ cannot be torn into parts, so these two which we perceive in him together and conjointly are inseparable, namely righteousness and sanctification. Whomever, therefore, God receives into grace, on them he at the same time bestows the spirit of adoption, Romans 8.15, by whose power he remakes them to his own image, unquote. Justification is thus, on Calvin's reading, never without regeneration and vice versa. Still, quote, to be justified means something different from being made new creatures, unquote. To be justified is to be received, to be accepted as one who is innocent. Quote, there the question is simply one of guilt and acquittal, meaning in justification the question is simply one of guilt and acquittal. Through his critique of Osiander, Calvin's own positive interpretation of justification has been considerably deepened. Earlier I noted that we would eventually have to pose the question, what precisely is that righteousness of Christ which is made ours in justification? And the answer has been made now abundantly clear. The righteousness of Christ that Calvin has in mind is his acquired righteousness Calvin's phrase, the righteousness which is created by his work, which is to say, through his life of perfect obedience and his sacrificial death, from cradle to grave. In making this distinction between essential righteousness and acquired righteousness, Calvin made a significant contribution not only to the Reformed understanding of justification, but to Protestantism generally. The Lutheran formula of Concord expressed itself this way. Quote, Christ is our righteousness not according to the divine nature alone or according to the human nature alone, but according to both natures. As God and man, he has by his perfect obedience redeemed us from our sins, justified and saved us, unquote. By his perfect obedience. The emphasis here, too, falls on what Calvin called the acquired righteousness of Christ. Calvin has also, it should be noted, given expression to a careful ordering of the relation of justification to regeneration. In saying, now notice carefully, quote, Whomever therefore God receives into grace, on them he at the same time bestows the spirit of, of adoption, by whose power he remakes them into his own image, unquote, Calvin makes justification to be logically prior to and the foundation of that bestowal of the spirit of adoption by means of which the believer is regenerated. On this view, regeneration would have to be seen as the logical consequence of the divine verdict registered in justification. In sum... Calvin's understanding of justification is strictly forensic, or judicial in character. It's a matter of divine judgment, a verdict of acquittal. And the means by which it is accomplished is imputation. I hope this much has been made clear. For now, I'm going to have to muddy the waters just a bit. 
And with this, we'll quit for tonight. As much as Calvin contributed to the evolution of the Reformed understanding of justification, it cannot be maintained that Calvin spoke the last word where Reformed soteriology generally was concerned. The problem has to do with a concept which Calvin touched upon in his debate with Osiander, namely that of union with Christ. If we were to ask how we come to participate or share in the acquired righteousness of Christ, Calvin's answer, as we just saw in the context of his treatment of justification, is by imputation. But talk of our union with Christ can be seen as opening the door to a quite different answer. Whether the two answers are thoroughly compatible or not is not a question which I can resolve here. Suffice it to say that at several points in the Institutes, Calvin appears to make union with Christ to be logically, if not chronologically, prior to both justification and regeneration. And to the extent that this is so, union with Christ is made to appear as a third independent aspect of the Holy Spirit's work to be ranged alongside of both justification and regeneration as their common root. Most famously, Calvin appears to do this in a passage with which he opens his discussion of the place of justification in Christian soteriology. There he says, quote, By partaking of him, we principally receive a double grace, namely, that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious father, and secondly, that sanctified by Christ's Spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life, unquote. Now, the effect of such a statement would seem to be to make justification and regeneration to both be the effects of a logically prior participation in Christ, which has been effected by the uniting action of the Holy Spirit. Quote, Therefore, that joining together of head and members that indwelling of Christ in our hearts, in short, that mystical union, are accorded by us the highest degree of importance, so that Christ, having been made ours, makes us sharers with him in the gifts with which he has been endowed. Unquote. Now, the problem with such statements, and it is a problem of sizable proportions, is that one of the gifts which are alleged to flow from union with Christ, one of the gifts, namely regeneration, is very difficult to distinguish conceptually from that union which is supposed to give rise to both justification and regeneration. For surely, the establishment of the intimate relation of head and members, the indwelling of Christ in our hearts, is what Calvin also means by regeneration. I'm suggesting that when you try to give content to the concept of union with Christ, it very quickly seems to collapse into regeneration. But regeneration is supposed to be one of the two gifts that flow from union with Christ. But the apparent contradiction which would arise here is only the beginning of the problems. We haven't yet caught sight of the most serious problem. If by making union with Christ the root of justification... Calvin is at the same time breaking with the ordering of justification above regeneration, which was announced in the context of his debate with Osiander in chapter 11, verses five, uh, sections 5 through 12. He would also at the same time be guaranteeing 
that his break with medieval Catholic views was not as clean and complete as he himself obviously thought and hoped. For where regeneration is made, even if only logically, to be the root of justification, there the work of God in us, once again, and now on the soil of Protestantism, is made to be the ground of the divine forgiveness of sins. Such a conclusion is softened to some extent by the element of simultaneity, by the fact that the priority here spoken of is strictly logical. If it were not so, then what Wilhelm Niesel has described as the burden of Calvin's response to Osiander would be something of which he, Calvin, too, was still guilty. Quoting Niesel, If God were only to justify us in view of a new life previously begun in us, we should never be certain of salvation, but would constantly have to ask whether the new life begun in us really qualified us for the verdict of God's justification. Unquote. What distinguishes Calvin from Osiander, according to Niesel, is this note of previously begun. What Niesel does not seem to appreciate, however, is that a mere logical priority of regeneration over justification is scarcely well equipped to prevent the note of simultaneity from sliding over gradually into previously begun. Only the strict emphasis upon imputation is capable of closing the door with finality upon the Catholic view. Now there is much more that could be said here on the subject of union with Christ in Calvin's theology, which might narrow the distance between imputation and union with Christ as possible answers to the question of how we come to share in Christ's acquired righteousness. But I cannot address that interpretive issue here. My goal has been simply to acquaint you with a conceptual problem which has been accentuated by the order of teaching with which Calvin opens Book 3 of his Institutes. He treats first union with Christ, then regeneration, and only then justification. It is quite true, as Niesel argued long ago, that Calvin's motive in organizing Book 3 in this way was to take the ground out from beneath Catholic polemic against the Protestant doctrine of justification on the grounds that it constituted a legal fiction. But one has to ask, did Calvin really maintain the kind of conceptual clarity which would have allowed him, in a different set of historical circumstances, to reverse the treatment and to take up justification before regeneration? Or was the treatment of regeneration prior to justification not itself necessitated by the foregrounding of union with Christ? What I've tried to show here is that Calvin's definition of justification and the view of the relation of justification and regeneration, which that definition required, collided sharply with possible implications of his chosen order of teaching. And that, with that, we'll have to quit tonight. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to begin with an assessment of what went wrong in Calvin and then try to propose an alternative. I thank you for your long-suffering and your attention. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ.
We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.